0: Have I been giving you enough like, eye contact, or am I sometimes not giving you enough eye contact? What are you doing here? Why don't you take this bottle and go to bed? (sighs) Ah! Another one like that. (laughs) Freemasonry of cinephiles.
1: Cinephile?
0: Paradiso. Welcome to episode four of Cinephile Paradiso. I'm your host, Quaid Kirshner, and sitting next to me is my sexy, dirty, and mysterious co-host. Si, mi chiamo Davide. Davide, Davide Collins. <laughs> no, sorry, that's that was a bit insulting to all the Italians out there. Quaid, I have a question for you. Know, you know, what's your name, but You haven't told everyone what your name is. My name is David Charles Collins. Okay, what's your question? Because I was actually going to ask you a question first, but you go first. Quaid, is it yeah? racist to do an Italian accent? Um, if you're not Italian, yes, let's just say that, because... What about if you're Mediterranean like you are, because you're Greek? Yeah, but I'm not Italian, and I feel like that was a dig at Italians, not Greeks. Hmm. Mm. Anyway, before we start, and before we announce the theme, I have a game for you. Okay. Okay, so the game is, you go first and I'll go. I want you to sing two lines of a song that okay. you think encapsulates the theme of the week. Okay, so you go first. Oh, do you want me to go first? Because I have a song in mind.
1: Oh, uh, I actually was, was going to sing yeah. Lady Gaga at you earlier.
0: Oh, but fuck! I <laughs> yeah, so, wait, so just sing. Go sing. <laughs> well, there's... What's a the, uh, Fuck! Like, there's... I'm your biggest fan. Yeah. I'll follow you until you love me. Papa, Papa. Ranzi. So, that was your song? No, because there's the other one. Like, what what one? What's, what's her one about... That's her one song. Fuck! All right, well, there's a David Bowie one. Okay, sing that one. Can't think of it. Okay, well, you've ruined the game because I was actually <laughs> going to sing that song. So, whatever. Give us a few more bars. I'll give you another song. Ready? <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be famous. I want to be a star. I want to be in movies. When I grow up, MTV. Uh, uh, and that big boobies. Uh, I don't think it is boobies. But anyway, look, hang enough on, of on. this game. Famous, no, no, no. David Bowie. En- enough of this. Oh, actually, there is also... um uh <laughs> I want to live forever. I want to learn oh, how to fly. Sorry. Fly! I do have one. What?
1: Go. When... Will I be, I be famous? I can't answer that. I can't answer that. When will I have my pictures in the paper? Who sings that? I can't answer that. Who sings that? I can't answer
0: that. It's from a musical. Really? Which musical? You're a terrible queer boy. Anyway, look, let's just go on. The theme, obviously, is not fame, it's... Celebrity, which I, it was weird that you didn't write celebrities on the note when we pulled it out of the jar, but it, it's celebrity. Did I write it? You wrote it. You no. wrote celebrity. <laughs> but I feel like it would have celebrities would have maybe made a bit more sense. But whatever, celebrity, celebrity. But it's celebrity. So on that note, the first film that we are going to review is the one that I actually picked for David and I to watch, and it is Birdman. Cock-a! Or, <laughs> Cock-a! Birdman or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance which came out in 2014 and was directed by Alejandro González-Henri quite I hope I said that right. Why are you looking at me like that? Is this a movie about the man that was found dead at Big Bird's ranch? No, I will tell you what it's about, actually. The film is about a washed-up actor named Regan Thompson, mm. who's played by Michael Keaton, who once played a superhero called Birdman. Regan attempts to revive his fading career by writing, directing, and starring in a Broadway production. You know, fuck, that's a lot of work, so no wonder Regan is losing his mind in this film. Also, Michael Keaton, pretty exciting. We're all busy, Quaid. We're all busy. So, a bit of trivia before we get into the nitty and gritty. So, apparently, which you'll probably not find this too hard to believe, the film only took two weeks to edit because the movie was so carefully rehearsed and shot in sequence. Do you believe that? I believe it. Yeah, it's pretty amazing because usually editing can take... Ages and this film has some VFX effects in it, so. It does, it's got some very. um, Yeah. So, Interesting effects. Yeah, and then another bit of fun facts. There are only 16 visible cuts in the film. That's why the filming style reminded me so much of Sam Mendes' 1917, even though there's only, like, one or two cuts in that whole film. And the movie was also largely shot inside Broadway's St. James Theatre, which I don't think I've ever been inside. Have you been to the St. James Theatre at Broadway in New York? I've never been to New York, quite. Anyway, um, last fun fact. Due to the unusual style of filming... The actors actually started making a tally of who made the most mistakes, and apparently Emma Stone had made the most. Well, that seems healthy. Well, I think it's only fair because she is one of the standouts in the film. That's true. And do we grow through making mistakes? Yes. Yes, yes we do. Fail. <laughs> a teacher once taught me, fail forward. Fail more, fail better. So, I think it will start with, obviously, I spoke about before how, you know, the movie is about this washed-up actor named Regan Thompson. So, pretty much, he's trying to inject some life back into his acting career. And so he has three other actors that he has hired to also be in this Broadway production that he's created. So the actors he has with him is, let me get the names. So we have um, Edward Norton, who plays Mike Shiner. We'll get a bit to that later. So, yeah, Mike. Another actor is Leslie Truman, who's played by the amazing Naomi Watts. And one of the other actors that plays in this Broadway show is Laura Alburn, who's played by Andrea Rizbara. I don't think Rizbara... You, I'm, I'm not sure, but um, have you seen her in something before? You I have. Mandy. Is yes. She, oh, I knew it. Oh my God. Okay. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Anyway, so Regan, he's put this um, Broadway production on, and pretty much he's faced with his own inner demons throughout the whole entire film. And while that is happening, he also has his daughter, who's played by Emma Stone, who has just come out of rehab. So she's actually, I guess, maybe he's actually doing her a favour. She's actually helping him out with a few things here and there. She's a glorified runner, essentially. But he's employed her. Well, he's employed her. So, and then, obviously, this film is focusing on you know, his inner turmoil, and I guess the dyna- the dynamic between him and all the other actors, and kind of, I guess, what happens in this film. Did that make sense? Of course it did. Yeah. So, I'll first start by saying, look, I love how Regan, he visualises his subconscious as the character of Birdman, because this, super- this superhero that he once played represents the height of his success. And obviously, that would fuel his ego. And I just, I want to go back to Michael Keaton. I'm so happy they chose Michael Keaton for this, because it makes the most sense, because in his own personal life he played Batman in 1989 and again in 1992 and then after that I don't know about you but he kind of went a bit under the radar Michael who? Michael Keaton. No I'm joking. <laughs> but like I just love the parallels there and I think it's perfect casting. Intentional yeah exactly. It's intentional like you know Michael Keaton comes well I mean he's playing Regan and Regan you know was this famous actor who was Birdman and then after Birdman 3 it kind of just... His, and, and his he's, light window, I guess. And he's
1: known as Birdman in all the press. Everybody's asking him, when are you doing the next thing for Birdman? It's still on the table. Like, all of the the, the questions seem to come back to that he's known for that one thing, and
0: he's almost more famous for that character than he is as an actor. Yes, and look, we'll, we'll, we're going to get to that. So, with the voices that he hears in his head throughout the film, would you say that's his ego, his inner saboteur, or, as you mentioned in the first ap- episode, his
1: shadow self? Well, I was going to say, this is the second film we're doing where someone is externalizing part of himself as a bird, as
0: a bird. <laughs> Natalie Portman Dino, Michael Keaton Regan um look I would say that yeah that's
1: the identity that he has externalized it's almost like you know how Beyonce has um Sasha Fierce that's the version of him the performer of Sasha him. Fierce you haven't heard of this? No. No, so Beyoncé uh, sort of has this... Alter this ego? ...tolpa, this alter ego that she becomes, that she needs to embody to be that performer, to be that character on stage, to keep it separate from herself and her intimate life and her personal life. So Beyoncé is Sasha Fierce when she's performing, and then she can be Beyoncé in her, in her... But then
0: why are we too, still so. calling her Beyoncé when she's performing? Shouldn't we be calling her Sasha Fierce? Because I think that that's something
1: personal to her, and she has talked about it since then, but how she needs to create that alter ego that is that celebrity um, so she can be that person for the public, and I think that Birdman for him is that version of himself that is that character that bleeds into him as a person, because when people look at him, they don't see him as... Do we
0: actually get his name, or is he just known as Birdman through the whole thing? Does someone refer- David, that's embarrassing. I've literally been saying throughout the episode so far, Regan Thompson. Regan Thompson, I'm so sorry. The- in my oh, notes, I my just him as Birdman. Uh, oh my God, <laughs> I, cannot, I, I cannot believe it. Well, you. if you're going to chastise me, I'll edit it <laughs> out.
1: I'm in control. Look, look, look,
0: look, and also, Regan is torn because because... because on one hand, he loves the success that Birdman brought him, but at the same time, he resents it because he feels like a sellout who hasn't done anything meaningful with his career.
1: Which I think is, you see this with so many people that become successful and known for one thing that makes them successful, suddenly in their mind, they view that as being something that delegitimizes them. They're like, oh, I'm only known for this, whereas I'm capable of so much more. And I do think to an extent that um, is them disqualifying the value of the thing that they have bought the public. And also I think it's patronizing to fans of that sort of cinema or those characters. As in superior blockbusters? Yes, because it's essentially saying their tastes are <laughs> stupid and I should be I not mean, for something higher. Defi- it's like yeah. these are the people that made you famous and their tastes are important and you suddenly saying you're better than that is saying that what they believe and care about doesn't actually matter and that's kind of like, you know, spitting in the hand that feeds you. Is that a saying?
0: Well, no, it definitely is and I, fi- I think before we... Obviously, we're not going to get to the second film yet but, like, there is definitely major parallels between this film and the other one where the main protagonist is torn between, I guess, a commercialism and and then I guess an authenticity. Does that make sense? They're torn between these two ideas. I get, I get it,
1: but it's also something that we see a lot in, say for instance, you've got Lady Gaga or even Lana Del Rey to some extent. Now, they're both yeah. performers I enjoy, but their performances, when they started off, they were almost performance artists in the way that how they dressed and how they presented themselves was so much part of their persona. It wasn't just the music. Yeah. And they saw that as an expression of themselves and part of their art, then they get very successful on that and suddenly they have this crisis where they want to strip it back and go, no, but I want the adoring public to love me for me and they just come out wearing a singlet and a pair of jeans going, adore me as this version of myself and again, it's sort of saying, it's contradictory to what they were saying before about the performance being an expression of them and being part of their artwork, and then suddenly they're like, but why don't you love me without all that stuff? It's like, because then you're just someone off the street, and that doesn't mean you're not deserving of love, but that person is deserving of love from their friends, their family, the people around them. I think maybe it's because as humans, our little lizard brains are not capable of of processing being that So
0: are you saying that the real Regan Thompson is Birdman? No, I'm saying that he should appreciate that side of his career.
1: And his personality and that he doesn't, I suppose to cope with that level of fame he had to externalise it as something separate but that's sort of, it's almost like MKUltra kind of um, Project Monarch training where that he's broken down so much that instead of it being assimilated into his personality as a facet of him, he views it as something separate. It's like a split Mm. personality which is why we hear the voice coming from outside of him and it's something that influences him externally.
0: Well, there's a very important scene in the film where Emma Stone I'm going to have a character's name because I don't want to keep on referring Sam so Sam has a bit of a confrontation with her father Regan and she pretty much I guess poses a very important question And it pretty much, what she's pretty much saying is, as creatives, do we create for the art or do we do it to stay relevant? Because I think um, Regan, the whole time, subconsciously he's thinking, I'm doing this because I want to do something that means something special in my career. Whereas Sam is really saying, no, you're only doing this to stay relevant. And Sam also represents, I guess, the social media age. Whereas Regan represents a time where Hollywood didn't depend on social media because social media didn't exist. I mean, but the but only thing that kind of existed were, I mean, not kind of existed, was the magazines. But, like, it, but it, no, it, that wasn't the only
1: thing that existed. And when we get onto the next film, I think we can talk about how the human spirit has always been the same in this architecture of celebrity and fame. It's just that the tools that we use to do that have changed so much. But got like, you. I, I, you know, and, and because the, there was, uh, it was less democratic and the power to project the idea and depiction of celebrity was not as available to everyone. You could argue that it was more refined and a bit more mysterious and maybe that's true but I don't think that desire or obsession has shifted I just think the way that we handle it has it's also interesting how you said do we do it for them or do we do it for social media have you been watching the latest series of Atlanta no I haven't oh it's amazing anyway in I think it was the latest episode so uh, Donald Glover's character plays the manager for his cousin who's a musician and uh, the musician is fighting to stay relevant after becoming really successful and and he tries to manage a younger talent and he says to his manager Donald Glover He says, "How do you do it? It feels so gross." And Donald Glover's character says, "You just have to remember it's not about what feels good; it's about what lasts." And that's Mm. such a cynical perspective on it. But from the money perspective, and from the point of view of the person who has to keep it going and facilitates you creating through maintaining it as a business, you do need to look at it from that cynical lens of how is this going to be sustainable? So I think it's just a tripwire. Like it's you know, it's a balancing act of maintaining both staying inspired but also keeping it lasting within the larger ecology of culture
0: well it definitely did make me reflect this film and it made me ask myself am i doing acting for the art or am i doing it to stay relevant and i think that's very confronting you'll always be relevant to me thank you david but even you're like that's not enough (laughs) that's not enough i need (laughs) millions of fans i need love but what about like you do you are you sometimes confronted by that idea in your own practice
1: i think i was very early on in my practice because I was making work sincerely for myself and that's when I got, I think the ball was rolling the most where my work really spoke to people and the money people, the galleries wanted to jump on that and they thought right, this is sincere and let's sell it and then I was being given a lot of advice that was market driven that wasn't sincere to what I wanted to be doing and I took it because I was very young and that's where things started to spiral because you compromise yourself in in a very large way from the perspective of people that are just looking at marketability of things and then you lose your freshness and then they drop you because it's not fresh anymore and i've you know i feel like i've recovered from that and it's a valuable lesson to learn but it's a lesson to learn but
0: are you saying though so you're with your work now are you so you're saying it's both relevance and for the artistry it has to be a balance it has to be a balance okay no that's good that's that's really good i do want to stress though now about the character of mike who is played by edward norton because i think for a lot of people who maybe don't See much into the acting world, they'd probably see that character as a bit maybe unrealistic or not even like caricature. A bit of a caricature. Uh, Did I say that? I think I said that wrong. Anyway, what I do want to say though is that this Mike character is very spot on. He's dangerous, narcissistic, and he's a ticking time bomb of an actor. And I don't personally want to get into the nitty gritty details, but I've definitely what are we doing here? Yeah, (laughs) what are we doing? But I've definitely, I've definitely met a Mike before, and it's so dangerous because. You have to be so vulnerable on stage. You have to give so much of yourself. And when someone takes advantage of that or doesn't have your back on stage, it's absolutely, it's terrifying. And I once had to do a very intimate scene for an acting school I went to. It was a cult. And um, during rehearsals, my scene partner would cross various boundaries similar to what you see happen between Mike and Leslie. Leslie, for a reminder, is played by um, Naomi Watts. He essentially tries to rape
1: her on stage.
0: Well, yes, yeah, exactly. And so I think his character embodies a type of actor that is so, so real. I've experienced it firsthand, and it it was really... Uh, not even confronting. I mean, for me, it wasn't too confronting to see on stage. But be- I mean, on the screen, because I was like, I believe that I've seen that happen before, and I'm, I'm actually happy that that is being addressed. Do you mean confronting addressed. or
1: do you mean surprising?
0: I think for other people who don't know too much about this world would find it surprising yeah. and confronting, whereas me, I, I don't want to say appreciative because that probably sounds a bit messed up, but I I, was glad it's being acknowledged? I I was glad it was being acknowledged because I was like, it does exist and it needs to be addressed. And I, Absolutely, yeah. and,
1: and I don't think that, I don't know how it's even going to start to be addressed because, especially in the creative industries, I'm sure all businesses, but we just happen to work in the creative industries, there are those people that, they are talented, but that talent seems to be this thing that means that everyone who has the power to make change to protect other people that work in that sphere go above and beyond Mm -hmm. to make exceptions for someone who is essentially a danger to other people that are there and it is it is something that we are not this is not even a glimpse into the past this is so relevant today that i yeah i I think that i I don't think that this is about a reference to a previous period in time or a select group i think that this is more often the rule than not
0: and it's just funny also because mike he yearns to live this truth on stage because to be honest he can't live truthfully in his own life exactly and that's that's what his
1: erection is a metaphor for that the fact that he can't get hard in real life but the minute he's on stage and playing a character he can suddenly go right now i'm ready to fuck it's like that's the place that he lives and can express himself but when he's in the real world he's sort of this impotent non-human
0: exactly and that's why if anyone ever said to me oh, look, I don't understand what goes on inside an actor's head, or I would like a glimpse into their world, I would honestly tell them to watch this movie because it's not scared to show the ugly, unlike La La Land, which is a complete puff piece, in my opinion. This, like... Birdman is the film.
1: Emma Stone, what have you done? Emma Stone, what have
0: you done? But yeah, Birdman for me, it's it's raw and it's ugly and it's not afraid to, to show the ugliness and that's why I really appreciate it and think people should watch this because it's not even just talking about, I guess, abuse am- amongst fellow actors. It's also talking about mental health. Absolutely. Like with Regan and everything that's going on in, w- well, within. It's-
1: well, that, that, that's exactly right. This level of duty of care especially when it's at the point where he is quite obviously having some sort of breakdown there is too much money involved for anyone involved in production to go okay we're going to take the time to make sure that you're okay or we're going to stop things before you blow your face off in on stage I, instead it's like we need to keep this rolling because we've got money wrapped up in this and you know
0: exactly and also what's again so spot on with actors is that all the characters in the film are so Desperate for affirmation, that they crave it, and without kind words and reassurance, they just crumble.
1: And I, I think I think something that Leslie says. Yes. So, oh my God. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah this yeah, so on the money. Yes. Is that she said that she just dreamed of being on Broadway. Yes. The
0: whole time. Oh my God. I got the quote here, but you were well, you want me to say? I was it. just saying. So she later. writes. She sorry. Writes. She says, "I'm pathetic." You know, I've dreamt of being a Broadway actress since I was a little kid. And now I'm here, and I'm not a Broadway actress. I'm still just a little kid, and I keep waiting for someone to tell me I made it. So, wow. That... And, that, and that's... It's so
1: profound. Well, it's it's not just profound, but it's something that I've seen uh, reflected in a lot of interviews with actors or uh, on those beautiful, like, roundtable discussions that you can view on um, YouTube, which is usually a bit of a circle jerk of actors, but sometimes <laughs> people actually... No, but sometimes people, you actually get some genuine, valuable insight and, you know, you watch actors say, I just keep waiting for the ball or to be told, it's happened, I've made it. And you realise, no, you just work and then you get a job and it might be a good job and then you get another good job and... but. At- point do you ever necessarily feel secure or like oh i'm one of the people now that's not to say there aren't people out there that float around going i have made it in fact probably my characters represent that sort of person whose headspace is i have made it and i am very important but um they're the ones that i think are, are dangerous to everyone
0: yeah but also we need to talk about the portrayal of the female characters in this film sure i how did you feel Because especially, let me go back to her name, Um, so Laura, we find out at the beginning of the film that Laura and Regan are actually having an affair and Laura may be pregnant with Regan's baby. And I feel throughout the film, her character's kind of written a bit one-dimensional and it kind of goes into that space of hysterical woman again. That's how I felt. Naomi Watts' character, Leslie, had a bit more meat to her, but I don't know. It just it kind of felt like, again, all the female characters, they're making them hysterical, and they're there to serve the, the male I'm, characters. I'm going to
1: say no, because all of the characters in this seemed... Fragile and hysterical. I, yes, think that it that's was, true. I think that it was a portrait of all of these. Like Mike, character was an abs. He was an alcoholic who you know tried to have sex with Naomi Watts on stage. You have Birdman who thinks that he can levitate and believed that he actually made the other actor have an accident. because and, he wasn't or, and, good and telekinesis. He thought know, he had telekinesis. telekinesis yeah. You have um, Zach Galifianakis's character who is just the producer trying to hold everything together. <laughs> he's really quite this fragile person who you know is bitten off more than he can chew. Definitely. So I, I think that it, all of them are portrayals of people who are just doing their best to hold it together and I thought um, Laura was this character who represented I think that she was quite comfortable in herself as an actress as a performer which I think we're allowed to see that level of confidence in her personal life she has demons and has wants and desires she wants to be a mother she wants to be loved she wants all of those things Mm. and she's not such a mess that she's necessarily in tears going be with me or I'll kill myself but she's saying come on man like I might be having our child what do you think about that why won't you commit to me why won't you and you know then she is a little bit flippant about what happens to Leslie on stage when Mike wants to have sex with her which is reflective of some people's attitude they're just sort of like okay whatever I Mm. I don't know I think that it was just I think that it was a fair even-handed portrayal across the board because everyone was handled with the same level of introspection of their insecurities
0: yeah I look I guess so but then also there's a scene where Regan's ex-wife Sylvia comes in played by Amy Ryan. And Sylvia, it seems like she is in a good place personally in her life. She's moved on and she has really healthy boundaries with her ex-husband, Regan. However, I felt like it was a bit a bit of a step back for her character when she goes back and I guess falls in love with him again? I don't know if falls in love with is the
1: right thing. I think that she's very well aware that he is a flawed person who will never, like she cares about him obviously, but she understands that if at their engagement, I mean, at, at their anniversary party, she walks in on him having an affair She knows that she loves him, but he's not available to her. So you can see from when they're in the hotel that she still deeply cares about him and their child that they have together. But of, you know, she even goes to the opening of the show to support him. This is but true. She, but she knows what the relationship is, which is, I love you, I care about you, but I can't be with you because you can never truly be with me.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I think, look, I think we've harped on about characters enough. I do want to talk about the cinematography because the continuing shots didn't give you time to take a breath and it made me feel like I was trapped in their world and it was something. Navigating. Even the drums playing throughout the film made me made my head want to explode, and it made me very anxious. Did you kind of get that feeling too?
1: I got that feeling, and I empathise with it entirely. When you're working on some sort of set, or some, especially something that's live, that the fact that they had that constant drums really reminds me of the grinding of the teeth or the fact that, you know, you sort of are at this pace where you have to go, go, keep moving. Yep. You can't stop. There is no moment of breath. There's got to keep moving through things. People constantly coming out of corridors to talk at you, things that you need to be constantly thinking about. And also at the same time, trying to deal with your own shit. I thought that they captured the claustrophobia of that really well. So sort of, again, very similar to the way they did in Black Swan where they had very tight camera shots that were shallow yep. depth of field. So there's this claustrophobia happening there. The, yeah, the that's scene that I for really it. loved was where... Um, Regan stepped out for a cigarette and his dressing gown got caught. I think that was the first moment that (laughs) you actually understood that all the supernatural things that Birdman could do were in his head. If he was truly telekinetic, he would have been able to like open the door and walk back inside. Instead, he's literally naked bare in front of the world having to push through. But also I empathized with that. The amount of times you're in a situation that you think you're under control being told you have 10 minutes and you need to be back here or else everything falls apart and you find that, oh my God, I'm actually don't know if I'm going to be able to make it there time i yeah I, I really appreciated the pacing of it and how yeah. it kept you just on your toes and your heart rate up the entire time
0: but even like the setting the setting was a character itself in the film because the the stage would act as a passage of time every time the camera would move to the stage time would have moved forward did you notice that yeah because you could tell by whether it was a rehearsal or whether they were dressed dress or, or a matinee an or yeah whether, yeah and majority of the film is set in the narrow halls and green rooms of the backstage and it does feel like there's no space, going back to how you said it feels like it's... I can't even say the fucking word, claustrophobic. Floor. You're too claustrophobic to say claustrophobic. Yeah, I know, I know. And whatever space was left remaining was taken up by these egotistical and narcissistic characters. And you, you're just definitely seeing the world through their lens. And But whenever, like you said, when Regan finally does go out into the streets of New York after his dressing gown's caught and he has to kind of run through half-naked, you finally get a bit of a breath of fresh air being out in the streets.
1: But I think that... You- that's where it's sort of that agoraphobic idea of when he's out in the world, he's vulnerable to people, he's suddenly, it's almost like he's, it's funny because it's Birdman, it's almost like he's a little mouse and there are all these hawks flying around and he's in the open and not safe in the trees, whereas the corridors of the theater is where he's safe amongst his own kind, but when he's out in the world and again, stripped bare, practically and you know, and literally naked, in his underwear yeah, he suddenly becomes the prey of the populace running at him going, oh my god, it's Birdman it's Birdman, and then he's only safe again once he's in the warm corridors of this Cocoon that he sort of created for himself. Again, it ties into a quote for the next movie that we're gonna talk about where one uh-huh. of the characters yeah. says
0: I know what you're saying, gonna say. Yeah, yeah. where he says that you can't conf- what did he say? I you can't confuse I can get the I can get the quote. Please but, get the- but should we save it for the next film? We'll save it for the next one. Yeah, you'll save it, yeah. We'll those, yeah. reference so back. What, Bookmark this. So what did you like about did you like the film, I should say? I did like the film.
1: I did like the film. So you're happy I made you watch it? I'm glad I saw this film because I probably never would have if you hadn't. Really? Well I didn't this is the thing. People always talk about how how Birdman is a good film, but in my head, I thought it was just a superhero movie. No,
0: David, no. It
1: takes a a stab at that. And look, I would... Yeah, well, it, no, I think it comments on it. doesn't necessarily take a stab at because at the end of the day, superhero movies are a cultural phenomena, so they are therefore available to have commentaries on and it's relevant to discuss them because I'm sure this is something that affects... I mean, Jesus fucking Christ, Chris Hemsworth is Thor. You know what I mean? I can yeah. imagine him having a sort of crisis like this in the future because what other performances do you remember him for? The Cabin in the
0: Woods? Like, seriously, he He is was pretty Thor. terrible in Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, not going to lie. It, but there was a cool sequence. In the film, where you have all these, like you have this big robotic bird and these missiles flying, and everything's kind of becoming chaotic because Regan is like visualizing that he's in an action sequence. Did you remember that part?
1: I mean, yes, I do remember that part. But for me, that wasn't him necessarily imagining that. I think that that was a representation of his internal sort of like just that chaos that's happening that means you can't think clearly.
0: And I saw in the background. I don't know if you noticed. It was during part of that scene. There was the Man of Steel movie poster in the background. There you go. Did you notice that? No. Oh, devastating. What would you get? So you you did like the film. What would you give it out of five stars? I know you hate ratings. No, it's but... fine.
1: Look, I think that I would give it. <laughs> I would give it as <laughs> close to
0: four stars as possible. I think it's a, a, a eight eight point five. It's it's like yeah. So sorry. A four sorry. Four point four point two five out of five. I would give it. It's... I wouldn't because there was just. Oh, I, I, I it. thought
1: it was a good study of that phenomenon. that there was here you go. I enjoyed the film intellectually. It didn't really move me. Right. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. So that's probably why it loses points for me. And I know that's me being harsh. Maybe it's because as someone who is, you know, a creative who's trying to succeed, I have this thing in my, my, be in my bonnet about people going, poor me, everything worked out. But, um, but I think the whole point is that even once you are, you know, your problems don't go away, you're still the same person. If anything, it just
0: amplifies all the stresses in your life. So, well, I guess that's, you've kind of gone into my next question, what you didn't like about the film, which you're saying you couldn't emotionally connect.
1: Yeah, I guess that's it. I couldn't emotionally connect, and that's not to say that I couldn't, it was, the the feelings and the emotions and the experiences of the characters were clearly being translated, I thought they were wonderful portrayals and the -hmm. the actors did a wonderful job including the actor that plays a bad actor I mean, it's fucking hard it's hard enough to play a good actor how hard is it to play an actor who is not acting well but act that well? Is it bad
0: that I didn't think he was that bad? We can talk about it later but uh, (laughs) you can talk about it with your acting (laughs) coaches. What what, what actor encourage <laughs> um and then i guess which character did you empathize with the most i do kind of feel bad for like sam's character emma Stone, because she, I, her I father didn't. just wasn't there i didn't i
1: didn't she had a working parent which like a lot of us have parents that like yeah but her, david worked, her, no, her mother I'm just, I'm her sorry. father wasn't there I'm in sorry, her life no. he wasn't I don't he really wasn't
0: active it. in her life. Yeah, he and, doesn't... and
1: some people have fathers that have to do night shift or you know drive trucks long haul and they're not living in probably the comfort that she was at the end of the day. She was a spoiled brat who, <coughs> her mind turned in on herself because she was bored and she needed a reason and because there was nothing wrong with her life, she went, daddy was absent. She had a mother who was around, she was provided for. A lot of people have two parents that aren't around much because they need supplying for. So I didn't, I understood her character well. and there are lots of people, and yes, her, her problems do need to be addressed so she can become better and move on with her life, but I didn't necessarily look at her going, oh my goodness, this happened to her. I'm like, no, she's unwell and she needs to get better. And oh I do God. feel bad for that. But at the end of the day, she is an incredibly wealthy, well-off person whose parents are only doing their most to not only be humans that value themselves, but also provide for her. And that's not
0: enough. Well, yeah. See, so guys, I don't know if you can tell, but the theme of celebrity is quite a soft spot for David and I. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, can move. So- is that- I think I've asked you all the questions, eh? So. Yeah, but you didn't- I didn't actually answer it. You asked me who was the character that I empathised oh, with. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, we didn't even get there.
1: I think that- You can say none. No, you know what? I weirdly felt like I empathised with Laura. To some extent, Laura. Laura, she's the the one who was pregnant.
0: Pregnant, yeah, and then
1: lost the baby. Well, I think she thought she was pregnant, but she wasn't. wasn't. I think the reason I empathise with her is because she's sort of like she's working and she's just trying to get shit done, and she's trying to have like, but she's sort of God, I don't know. I think that she was just trying to get on with it. At the end of the day, I think she was kind of one of the more balanced characters. Everyone else was like having meltdowns, whereas she obviously had her shit going on, but she could work. She was maintaining her relationship. She was doing things, and yeah, she was a bit all over. shot. But but she was not to the point where she's sitting on balconies going, I just think about jumping sometimes, don't you? Yeah.
0: Mm. And if anyone is confused about part of the title, The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, the reason why that is part of the title is because one of the film critics, not film, sorry, theatre critics, there's a theater critic in the film that all the actors hate because they feel like I guess their job as a critic is superfluous. But um she ends up writing a review for this play that um Regan puts on and the I guess the title of the write up in the newspaper is The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance because she had assumed that this play was going to be a dumpster fire because it was produced and acted by a washed up, fading actor that thought he was top shit because he was once Birdman in a film. That's the title. That's, yeah, and that's why it's called Birdman or oh, The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. So let's now go on to our next film. David, take it away. <laughs> the
1: next. Film that we are looking at is Federico Fellini's
0: *La Dolce Vita*. Yawn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fuck you. It came out in 1960. Were you going to say? Were that? you helping? <laughs> in 1959,
1: 1916, Rome. Marcello Rubini or Marcello
0: Manstruani, No, nope, I probably got his I name wrong. I think you're but that's saying you're saying the actor's name and then you're saying the character's name. Well, Marcello Rubini is the character. The character, yeah, yeah.
1: He's a writer and journalist the worst kind of journalist, a tabloid journalist. (laughs) His job is to try and catch celebrities in compromising or embarrassing situations. He tends to get quite close to his subjects, especially when they're beautiful women. Two such subjects are local heiress, Madalina, um, played by Anouk Amy. She was stunning. Oh my god. No, she's very gorgeous. And Swedish superstar actress, Sylvia, played by the very iconic Anita Ekberg, with both of whom he has affairs despite being engaged to Emma, Yvonne Furneur. (laughs) Poor
0: Emma. Poor Emma. Yeah, seriously.
1: Now, the description in the movie title, we're going to have to break this down, but they describe her as a clingy, melodramatic woman. But let's go into that. I would say she's a gaslit, abused woman. Despite his extravagant, pleasure-filled lifestyle, he is wondering if maybe a simpler life would be better. Quaid.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you want me to
1: say something? I mean, this film, I think, was a beautiful examination of different types of obsession with fame and celebrity in different guises. So, defi- Yeah, definitely. In his way, my Marchetto is also a celebrity because he is this famous journalist and he's famous because of the relationships that he builds with yeah, these people. Yeah, he's, he's in the scene. Well, he's, not in not the only he's in the circles. Yeah. He's a little bit higher up than the people that are deemed to sort of be the rats and the mosquitoes fl- flutter around. The paparazzo. Around. The paparazzo, which I have a few interesting things on the quote there because I thought paparazzo was Italian for mosquito, but it turns out that that's actually a family name of
0: someone... Hang on, let's just look at this. So is this one of your interesting facts? It
1: is. Okay. So it seems the term paparazzo was coined by Fellini himself. Paparazzo means sparrow in one Italian dialect. In normal usage, the Italian sparrow is passero. Fellini explained that the photographers hopping and scurrying around celebrities reminded him of sparrows. So there you go. I thought it was mosquitoes. Uh, but mosquitoes is probably more fitting to be honest well no absolutely but I also saw another quote somewhere saying that it was a reference to someone that it reminded him of who um, paparazzo was the family name of those people so there's a lot of um, mixed up trivia around where the term comes from but anyway my point Mm. was Marcello is received a lot more kindly or elegantly amongst the celebrity class than the rest of the media because he is charismatic he is charming he is seductive to a lot of the actresses, heiresses, and important people. I'm very good looking. He's very good looking. Wearing a little bit too much mascara for my liking, but that's the fashion of the time. I, I guess. didn't
0: notice too much makeup on him, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it sort of weaves the story of how he is essentially a man in pursuit of
0: I don't know what he's in pursuit of. I think the ultimate... His own pleasures... But, but he doesn't know what he's in pursuit of. That's the whole I, point I of think the film. The, he's searching yeah. for something, but he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what, and then yeah. when
1: it seems to come into focus, when he's offered whether it is his actual fiancé saying, you know, I just want to feed you and look after you, and he's like, that's all you want? I don't want that. Or whether it's Madalena actually saying to him, would you marry me? I love you. Yeah, but then two
0: seconds later, she's getting with another guy. And I think that
1: represents <laughs> the transientness and the debauchery of of the upper class and the celebrity class. Well, but more like nothing means anything. Nothing means they anything. They do but something. But part of that is they because... They do things for so the sake of pa- doing things. True, but part of that is because he glides past the proposition. I think there is a moment of sincerity there where she's sort of echoing through the room and saying to him, I want you to marry me, I love you, I want to be faithful to you. Even though she's saying, I also want to have the pleasures of a whore. She's also saying, "Like <laughs> I, w- I want you to be my husband. But the fact that he doesn't even focus on that and moves past because he's too scared to be pinned down and commit to anything.
0: But part of him wants that, though. That's why he keeps on going back to Emma, and it's this toxic cycle. Absolutely. Because one moment, he wants to live this extravagant, free-living lifestyle where he has no strings attached, but then there's, there's another part of Marcello where he wants that... I guess that construct that society has built and says that you need to have a a wife, a kid's a beautiful home, you need to be uh, safe in your career. And that's why he has envy towards his good friend Steiner. Absolutely. Who also represents the saying, the green is always great the grass the green. Ah, the grass is always greener on the other side absolutely I also think that the film handles celebrity in a lot
1: of cases along the way so we have the movie star Sylvia who I to me I feel like she represents sort of a Marilyn Monroe character yeah definitely and that's very obvious not just in the fact that she's sort of a buxom vivacious blonde who is intelligent but has to play this sort of goo goo ga baby sort of role for the media and is very media ready she even when they yeah, say she, she gets is. off the private jet they say turn around and come back again and instead of being turned off or detoured by the paparazzi she She turns around and she does it again and she very sternly when they tell her to take off the glasses she says no because she's in control of her image also there's that quote where she's being interviewed and she's asked do you wear pajamas to bed or do you wear a nightie and she's like oh all I wear is two dabs of perfume is obviously a reference to the Marilyn Monroe quote when asked what she wears to bed she says I only wear Chanel number 5 so I think that's very... Yeah, clearly. it's like
0: a little nod. It's a nod
1: to that. Um, then, of course, there's the iconic scene in the Trevi Fountain with the I, white I was going to go
0: there. Yeah.
1: Which um, it apparently took her over a week to film. Really? Yes, and she was apparently an absolute trooper, wearing that dress, didn't complain once. The water was freezing because it was win- in winter. Marcello, on the other hand, had to wear a wetsuit underneath his suit because he was so cold and also downed a whole bottle of vodka to deal with the cold, so he was a oh. bit of a pussy compared to her. Um, also, why, why would you do vodka? I'd do whiskey. Also, uh, Fellini was not pleased with how dirty he said the water in the Trevi fountain was so oh. an airline provided green food dye to counterbalance that and apparently that pleased him by clearing it up wait they put green food dye in the fountain not food dye sorry um, dye colouring Oh, what colour? Green. Green. To neutralise the brown. So, we have the... Yeah, we have Sylvia, who's the Marilyn Monroe character, who's in... He's in... Him and the media are all in pursuit of the ideal of... And she obviously has her own desires and wants, but she's also very well practised in how to meet the public as that role. And she very appropriately dips out. I don't even think it's halfway through the film, because it moves on to the next thing.
0: Well, I wanted to say, the film is quite episodic. There's no... I guess there's no through line that drives the plot. You were just... He's you're an killer. observer. Yeah, you're an observer in the life of Marcello.
1: But also, I do think celebrity is relevant because the next thing that happens is the miracle of the Virgin Mary appearing to the children. So there you have another form of celebrity or obsession,
0: which is the idea of God. Well, I want to actually talk about God because... I love how in the opening shot there is a <laughs> helicopter carrying a statue of Jesus Christ, which is quite jarring because you have this juxtaposition between a religious spiritual sacred deity and then a man-made apparatus. But there was something like very beautiful about it. Also, Jesus being the idol that he is, it plays into the themes he's of... He's the ultimate celebrity. He's the ultimate celebrity and it and, and plays and into the theme straight away. And, and the because, paparazzi's in the helicopter yeah, taking and, photos. And the film is full of celebrities which
1: the general public idolise. Exactly. And the Virgin Mary is one of those. And the fact that these children become a conduit for it and the public respond in the same way as the movie star arriving, they all swarm the area where this miracle has appeared and the children have seen it and they, the paparazzi storm the house of these people and pose the relatives which I thought was a beautiful scene where it's like you need to lean this way and I want you to look like you're praying and I need you to talk t- about um, how beautiful it was when you found out your children had seen the Virgin Mary and then they're all posing gorgeously and the paparazzi disappear leaving these bewildered people in these poses and then obviously the church uh, signs off on saying that it's a miracle and then these children come out all dressed up beautifully and pray at this tree and then there is this beautiful part where the child goes there's the Virgin Mary, she's over there. And then everyone runs after the Virgin Mary. And yeah. she goes, there she is, she's over there. And everyone's just running around chasing this ghost, chasing this idea. As one of the women say, Italy's so mystical. People see God in where they say they see God. And it's the same thing with celebrity. The minute someone is famous, the minute someone's important, everyone suddenly projects it yeah. onto them and sees it and pursues it and chases it and they want a bit of it and they want to strip it bare and take things away from it like they do the tree afterwards where their Virgin Mary allegedly first appeared. Everyone wanted a piece of it, much like they want a piece of the celebrity. and I thought that that was a really beautiful way of passing like speaking of this as a phenomenon but in another form Mm. also how celebrity can to an extent kind of save you or raise you up from your situation is for instance you know you can become a you can become famous and suddenly you can go from not having much to having a lot Mm. likewise the fact that this miracle appeared meant that this family that probably wasn't the most economically stable or had much sway suddenly were very important they had clout even the fact that the Children said, build a church here or the Virgin Mary will not appear again. Suddenly they had say they had control over the community. And I feel like it was kind of a bit of a nod or a reference to the, what's it called? The Miracle of the Sun or the uh, Fatima Portugal incident in 1915. Uh,
0: yes. Hmm. I think it does, they have do seen that it's, it's a reference a, to that. It's a
1: heavy reference to it where uh, several children who are watching sheep, they're acting as shepherds, suddenly all three of them said that they had an apparition of the Virgin Mary appear to them and suddenly they became this cultural phenomenon and people were saying how incredible it was and these people that usually, they were just sheep farmers, suddenly had all this power and all this say. There's actually a really good episode on Strange Familiars about this that just came out, so if you're interested in it, they speak really well on the phenomenon there, But it's a situation where by tapping into this cultural obsession with a particular icon, suddenly you can be in a different place. It reminded me also, in 2018 in Malaysia, there was an outbreak in an all-girls school where suddenly all these girls were being possessed by jinn which is sort of islamic they're spirits but they're mm. sort of like trickster spirits or evil spirits or i mean I, there's you can go into that that's this whole thing it, it became this phenomena where all these girls were becoming possessed and it's argued if you don't want to look at it from the spiritual point of view there is also the cultural anthropo point of view of looking at it that these girls are living in a country community in the middle of nowhere in quite a uh, conservative culture the only way for them to have a voice and be heard was to say that they were a conduit for this powerful force that was coming through them that has cultural weight and as a form of hysteria suddenly they might have even believed this thing was coming through them and talking to them because people suddenly started taking them seriously when they were speaking to a genie or a djinn through these little girls and I think that the more cynical perspective of this whole miracle phenomenon I can see the Virgin Mary is I need people to listen to me and this is something that people value much like celebrity, much like movie stars, much like fandom.
0: Well it's funny because in episode 2 you were talking about how the religious aspects of First Reformed turned you off initially and here we are and you've spoken about the religious aspects of La Dolce Vita for like the last 10 minutes
1: I think it's because (laughs) I really enjoy the spooky quality of Catholicism (laughs)
0: Let's talk about the party sequences because I love how I I love how Baz Luhrmann, he gets praised for his elaborate party scenes. But Fellini definitely gives Baz a run for his money because there's an authenticity about the parties in this film that aren't prevalent in um, Baz's works. I don't know if it's because the characters are so quirky and individualistic or if it's because the events of the party themselves are just so random. Something
1: that I really admire Fellini for is the casting of his supporting cast because he has this eye for finding people that have unusual or eccentric faces or styling people in this peculiar yeah. fascinating way. Even the fact that we have, you know... Everyone a, feels so real. Well, not real, but also a little bit exaggerated, almost like um, Mad Magazine cartoons. We have the beautiful woman with the big horned rimmed glasses and then we have these people that are sort of I don't know, these gorgeous exaggerations of, of humanity in these party sequences that just make it so visceral and real. I really enjoy the, the way that he incorporates those characters. Even the goofiness, and I know that it's real, like it's mm-hmm. reflective of something real, but, you know, the little boy that was assisting the girl at the cafe, him just running around setting the tables by yeah. climbing on the chairs. I really liked the life that that brought to the movie and the authenticity,
0: like you said, no, gave to it. For, for sure. And look, I do, from watching the film, I definitely understand why this movie has the enduring legacy that it does because i honestly think the cinematography it makes it especially that scene of marcello and sylvia, sylvia in the trevi fountain it's it's iconic however for me the movie has not aged well and i don't know why tell me why well i think marcello's character is actually very problematic he's he's misogynistic he's a womanizer and his treatment of woman in the film is very degrading. He, there are so many scenes but where not, he's hitting them across I'm, the absolutely. face and but it's I don't gross. Think, I don't
1: think that means the film doesn't age well. It means that the... Uh, behavior is not acceptable because it doesn't say that it's okay that he's
0: doing it but he, he just, there's no it, consequence for it though he the, just keeps well, on doing as he's doing there's not
1: the consequence that there should be but also he's not thriving and succeeding i mean the mm. man that he admires steiner ends up uh, finding himself in yeah. this tower of his own creation and success and blowing his brains out what's what's the quote but it's well, like um, you're, you're so old you're like a gothic tower you're so high you can't hear the voices of anyone. Yeah. and he says back to it you have no idea how small i feel
0: and And Steiner, like I said, he represents a saying, the grass is always green on the other side. So, for um, Marcello, Steiner has the perfect home, the perfect family, and the perfect friends, the perfect life. However, there's a scene where Steiner actually says to Marcello, Don't be like me. Salvation doesn't lie within four walls. I'm too serious to to be a dilettante. A dilettante. A dilettante and too much a dabbler to be a professional. Even the most miserable life is better than a sheltered existence in an organized society where everything is calculated and perfected. And I was like, wow. Because even in my own life, I've had friends who aren't in a creative industry at all. They always are encouraging me and saying, Quaid, keep on going with your acting. Don't give up. Because I think, I don't know, I don't know if people view that as exciting, someone chasing their dream, even if it means everything around them is going to fucking shit I and think, making them so, so depressed. I think so,
1: because people get, you know, he he built this world around him of security and then suddenly he was just so paranoid it was all going to go away that it he caved in on himself and he views and fetishizes the creative so much that he curates these parties that have world successful, I think there was a a homage to Frida Kahlo there, the and painter those, from Mexico. And there's, there's a famous
0: poet painters, there too.
1: Painters, poets, writers, actors, all these people that they keep around them as eccentricities and curiosities because he, does, he feels like he doesn't exist in the world. Even the fact that he has recordings of sounds within nature because he has to capture and take home wildness and... Authenticity mm. and put it in this sterile environment. And I don't know, there's this thing about. I mean, I think it's actually quite groundbreaking for its time because it addresses the phenomenon of the family annihilator, which is usually a husband or a man who either loses a heap of money through business or is le- leading a second life and he views mm. himself as a failure. And he's so egotistical and maniacal and self obsessed that he thinks that his family is better off dead than knowing that he's a failure or they are poor or that. In some way, something is going to change the way that they're living. So he will take up the whole family and then himself because he thinks that there's no way they could exist without him. But he needs to take himself out of the world. And that is something that is spoken a lot about today in murder podcasts and psychological podcasts. But this film, you know, this film was... Gosh, it was made in 1959, 1960. Yeah. So the, it, I think that it addresses it quite well. Like,
0: well, yeah, look, like, de- definitely. And I think it's just funny because you, I think we all are, we, what's the word? We're all criminals of this. We're all no, victims I've never of this. No, I'm not my family. No, we're all, we all do, what, I can't even find the fucking word. Look, we all do Take this. I think of the word. Um, I don't know the word. I. We are all. We're all guilty of this. Yeah, thank you, guilty. Why was it so hard to find that word? We're all guilty of this because we always i guess it's it's human nature really to romanticize and idolize our fellow neighbors our fellow celebrities all of those sort of people we always think that they have the better life when really in the end they might want to blow their brains out well also the thing that
1: might be right in front of you and I, you know i want to go back to emma's character because i feel yeah
0: let's talk about emma because yeah. i feel bad because i feel like she simply cannot live without Marcello. But he also can't live without her, hence why they keep on going back to Again, each Again, it's, it's an
1: incredibly toxic relationship. Oh, so
0: toxic. I, I,
1: I do like that they spend more time exploring her because to start off with, she's this sort of, you know, this woman who's overdosed because her husband, her fiancé is out having an affair and he, uh, it, it, she's depicted as, he even says on the phone, you know, he's calling her this crazy, hysterical bitch who's always on his back. But she's essentially gaslit the entire film. Oh, well, she
0: is. And that's and, why I hate his character so much. Oh, the character's
1: a fucking arsehole. The last party scene, where he is abusing that woman actually. Yeah, she's that was drunk. a bit gross.
0: He was trying to yeah, start an orgy in that party scene. And, and then and that he, girl's drunk. He's taking advantage. He's hitting her, yeah, throwing snapping, feathers snapping from pillows. her pillows. Like it was, a, just, it was, her. It it was was just was was wrong. a was essentially of yeah. and feathering her. of yeah, no, no I, one's doing anything no, about it. No, it was just gross. And I I I think look, going back to what we were saying, all the parties, as fun as they looked like from the outside, you could just see that all these people in those parties, they were longing to feel something so that's why they would just do so much yeah, random after shit they're often well, more that's
1: also something that I really liked was the fact that you could see how the personal relationships that should carry a huge amount of weight actually didn't even that last party scene we find out that it's in the house of the man who the party's thrown for his wife, wife Just just a divorced, divorce yeah. and the fact that they so casually are talking to each other at this party that they don't care that they're getting divorced they're no, over they it don't,
0: because they don't empathise with anyone else They're 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 just thinking about what's next for them. They're just so focused on their own apathy. They just want to feel something. I want to party, 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 and I've got work in the morning. And even if that means taking advantage of other people's situations, they will do it. I do want to go back though. One thing I will say that I did appreciate this film because overall I didn't Love it. I, I mean, oh, I, I, mean love it. I mean. Look, I do prefer it over eight and a half.
1: I love it. I think love that it. I think it handles it really well. I think if you get over the idea that you need to be on the main character's side, if you
0: accept. Oh, that- I know you're not meant to be inside, but I always find trouble liking a movie where the protagonist is so unlikable hence why films like Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler I love that like the soundtrack everything about it is perfect but because his character is just so unbearable by the end of it I was like please just shoot this I was character having an anxiety attack, get rid yeah. of this character was a when funny
1: got he blown, brain yeah, blown Yeah
0: exactly so with Marcello though what I will say what I do appreciate is that you do kind of get a glimpse into why he does what he does, and that is when the father comes yeah, into exactly. town. and he, the way his father it's, treats him it's is sad the way that, because yeah. you can tell he wha- he yearns that the little boy within Marcello yearns for that relationship with his father that he never had. But then on the outside, everyone's looking at his father as this fun playboy. Playboy. And he is. He's also very charismatic, like Marcello. That's probably where Marcello gets it from. He's, and he's
1: clearly a womanizer having an affair on you
0: know. But what I do love is that their relationship, the father and son relationship in that film, How They Party Together, reminds me so much. It is you and your dad. Of me and my father. Yeah. So I was like when I was watching that, I was like, look well. like Papa. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I do, I do appreciate it for that sense. And look, there are a lot of beautiful, beautiful moments in this film, and I do see why it has this enduring life. i just think that all the actors do like
1: there is not one actor or even one supporting actor that i feel was a weak performance even the characters that are there peripherally for five seconds you you feel their story you feel their energy so much is done to paint them as sincere genuine full characters even if they're on camera for five seconds the work has been done to flesh them out and that really comes through it's such a rich film
0: It is. I think, as I said, because it is so episodic and there's no through line in the film, things, I guess, situations just kind of happen. I do feel like the runtime, for me personally, was a bit too long because there was no real character development, which is fine. It didn't have to have character development, but Marcello just kind of stays the same throughout, which I think is the point of the film because he's chasing this dream. He doesn't even quite know what this dream is. He doesn't actually really know what he wants. And, and... Because he's following this dream I guess hes he just feels so shallow about everything so I think by the end of the film you're supposed to actually feel this disconnect you're supposed to
1: I mean I thought I I liked how long it ran for it reminded me of what you get now from sitting down and binging a whole series on Netflix because you go on this episodic journey with someone Mm.
0: I think that I don't know if it it, justified three uh, hours I I,
1: I do because this movie is a (laughs) 100% better than anything Ryan Murphy has ever come out with and he
0: I mean I don't like Ryan Murphy but what I'm
1: saying is I'm like we, we are actually getting we think that because of TikTok and things like that our attention spans are getting shorter so movies and stuff are running shorter as well but there is another part of us that is getting used to watching things for long stretches of time and when this was made cinema was an event you went there and you know maybe you'd even have a intermission
0: in the middle so you could go and get some air but you were there for the story funnily enough when i first started watching this i was keeping note of the time quite a few times i was turning at the clock being like oh my god is that how much time has well, gone it's past because we have it's, to train ourselves to, so, pay so, attention. well that's what i was going to say this movie by the end of it i I was very invested. Use, I was very invested used to what was happening, and I was enjoying the experience. Not so much at the beginning. It's almost like you need to not train yourself, but oh, I don't even want to say get in the mood because I feel like if you always use the excuse I need to get in into the mood to watch a particular film, then you'll never actually watch. You need many to, put, great works you of need to cinema, put your phone so.
1: on airplane mode. Get yourself some snacks
0: sit your ass down and make yourself comfortable and actually yeah, get put, stuck into f- put it. put the fucking effort in. If it, just because it doesn't have a superhero or an explosion or CGI. I really loved that that poor
1: woman that was tarred and feathered turned to the camera and she just said, she went, the party's over, and I yeah. like that. It's like this—it's it, this purgatory thing that they're all just partying until they're exhausted, and the sun's coming up, and then they come out. and There's this monster, this this fish that's washed up on the beach, and it's you know this force of nature. But they're all trying to figure out what it is, and straight away someone goes to I bet I could sell it for this much. Like the monster almost represented that fame or that obsession to me. It's like I bet mm. I could buy it. I bet I could own it. I bet somehow I could make this mine. And then the fact that he said it's it never stops looking at you.
0: Like yeah, he's, he's at haunted. Him. He's haunted by it. Haunted by all the dead corpses he's had to walk over <laughs> well, to get him to this point in his career. You know,
1: the film, and especially the final beach scene, were inspired by the infamous 1953 Wilma Montessi murder case. Montessi was a normal Italian woman from a proper family. Her dead body was found on a beach near Rome. The investigation exposed the drug and sex orgies of Roman high society at the time. The murder remains an unsolved mystery today. So, the point that you were making about everything seeming glamorous from the external, but then when you go in, it is just a bunch of people having meaningless sex because, you know, having lots of sex, fine, as long as it's serving you, whatever. But these people are just doing it to try and feel something, taking drugs,
0: partying, getting in random cars, going out. Like, yeah, that beginning scene where Marcello and, is it Maddalena? They, yeah. they go on a random car ride with um, a, this sex worker and then they go in and make love in her apartment that's flooding. It was just so random. I don't think it was. I think they needed... I think they needed... <laughs> Look, I don't think it was. That's happened to me all the
1: time. <laughs> exactly. Like. I, I, I need this splash, splash, splash to get off. No, um, I think that they needed somewhere safe. They couldn't go back to his place. She didn't want to go back to hers and be seen because that constant eye of the paparazzi are watching. They picked up this sex worker, went back to her house because they thought this is a place that um, is known for discretion and people not necessarily paying attention to... You know, it's that thing that, I guess, culturally... Unfortunately, people are used to seeing the peripheral, but not really paying attention to beautiful Quite yes, <laughs> did you like the film?
0: I did and I didn't like, like yeah, I think I've explained already why I didn't like part of it I can't justify the runtime. I think if there was character development There was some sort of journey. I think I could justify the runtime, but because it is very episodic It is very random. It is a day in the life of this character. I couldn't really justify the runtime. Well, well, I
1: don't think it was a day in the life. It was a well, long Not a day in period. the life, yeah. It, it was
0: a period, like... yeah. But I mean, each episode was like a day in the life. Okay, yeah, Yeah, that's yeah, that's sorry. That, that's what I meant. Um, but no, I, I definitely enjoyed the cinematography. I loved watching the party sequences because I did, I honestly felt like I was watching a real party unfold you and I really like appreciated there. that. I was like, Baz, you need to learn from this. I loved <laughs> the
1: cat dances at the club. because
0: Yeah, just, before like, Cats the Musical was big, this had a, a nice dancing cat well, scene. I loved how it
1: was like both... ...sexy but also a bit messy and like unprofessional. It's, it's not the polish of a Bob Fosse number... ...and that's why I liked it. It was so real. And
0: I, I did love seeing Rome. It, I'm really excited to go next year. I have to say, that movie. It, the movie did make a bit me of excited. Did it finally inspire you to go to it, Rome? It, Quite yeah, it lit the, the biggest flame. suck about the no. fact that he's going on a European holiday. I swear to God. No, it's, it's not that simple. But <laughs> it made <laughs> Let's me... Let's get into it no, now. No, it, it made me excited to go to Rome. I did actually really like seeing all the scenes... ...where there were these big developments of apartments just popping up up because I don't, when I think of Rome, I don't think of that. So that was also kind of cool to see. Um, What was the next question you have? Is it empathize? Who do I empathize with the most?
1: Who do you empathize with the most? But also, which character did you like the most? But curious? see, this
0: is the thing. The only character that you can really empathize with is Marcello because he's the only fleshed out one. I don't think that's true at all. Um, you could be so... Like, I feel like a lot um, of people feel
1: for Emma. I feel like people... But like Emma wasn't fleshed out. Uh, she was. I feel, like the part, I feel like the part where they showed her when they were with the children with the miracle. Oh, that was lovely. And they followed her around for a bit and sort of showed this And also when she's at
0: Steiner's house. Exactly. The way that she was like, oh, this
1: is beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I do... not and, and, and conversing with these people about what she does and even just that fact like it was so heartbreaking where these people that are allegedly so cultured and interesting turn to her and say what do you do and you can see that she just feels so insecure even talking about herself yeah, because she's like well so oh, she- I'm around all these fascinating people I, so she's just like she turned the question around on them almost immediately she's like I just like cleaning and cooking but that wasn't to reduce her character I think it was to point out that she doesn't feel like she's valued in that sort of environment and she just flipped it back on them I don't know I think there's a lot in there Yeah, tamper, look I, look.
0: the character I feel for the most are, is obvious Obviously Emma, because I feel sad that she's in this really, really toxic relationship. That you know, as, she, as
1: an aspiring she, actor that she, I'm sure we'll see in a, a movie very soon. Did you did you feel like watching Sylvia's character? There was anything
0: that you need to take away from that? I mean, not really. I found her character really annoying. Like, oh really? I, I found her fake laugh really annoying. It was like. <laughs> Juno's laugh
1: I thought was hilarious. The model at the end, the um, the German one who was marrying the prince, was. (laughs) Oh,
0: is that that the one where Marcello meets her and then he's like, "Please take me to the castle." I loved the bit where she has the knight's helmet (laughs) on her and she opens it and she's like, "I want spaghetti." I I, I started laughing. I am your
1: grandfather.
0: Uh, That was really,
1: Um, really funny. I I just felt like I felt like I could see so much because I it's taken me so long to come around to liking Marilyn. Monroe. I understand she's a tragic figure, but so much of that <laughs> breathy baby thing, I think I find very grating, but I understand that was that was what she was forced to uh, manufacture I really, herself I as. feel
0: bad. I've never seen any Marilyn Monroe think, films. I
1: think Sylvia is the embodiment of that and is actually represents that very consciously and palates it very well because the way that she presents herself, that husky laugh and talk and how she needs to constantly be on and be someone for someone else and the only time we actually see her being authentic is when she is by herself with the cat by herself not with him but by herself because the minute he shows up suddenly she needs to be the object of desire again and then also when she gets into that fight with her I'm imagining the actor who's a drunk is her husband and we see that second of conflict where she's suddenly just going I haven't actually done anything wrong and she's running inside like going oh no it's
0: the director oh is that the director he's the director they're married Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, and then he got angry, obviously, because she's out on the Trevi Fountain hooking up with Marcello. Marcello. Yeah. I think that... Does that conclude everything that we wanted to speak about? You seem, you, 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 you seem like you want to say more. No, look, I could talk for hours about it. I know
1: you could. I, so I can I'm, tell. I think I can you tell. definitely wrap it up.
0: Now, but. we're going to do something a bit special, guys. We won't actually be picking from the glass Jar, vase, whatever you want to call it. The vase. We won't be picking from the vase this episode. Why, Quay? Why? The reason is, is because next week we have a special guest joining us. Our very first special guest for the season and for the entirety of this series, which is really exciting. Should I announce who it is or should I let everyone wait for Instagram to announce it? Oh, that's... Uh, you know what I will say? This is what I will say. So, next week we have a psychologist joining us. On our fifth episode of Cinephile Paradiso, and they—they're they're the ones that has actually picked the theme for next week. And the theme for next week will be psychotherapy in film, which is really really um I think fascinating. It's going to be a really interesting episode next week. So yes, please join us next week for Psychotherapy in Film with our special guest. And yeah, um please watch out for our Instagram for when we announce who that special guest is and for what movies we will be reviewing. We do actually know at this point in time what movies we will be talking about, but we want to, you know, keep it a little surprise for our all our listeners. Absolutely. Show yeah. up
1: and have your brain massaged by our psychotherapist.
0: Yes, yep, very exciting. Blue so, in the beers. So, yes, um thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Thank you so much. I've been David Charles Collins. And I am Quaid Kershanon. Love you, bye. Bye.
1: Cinephile Paradiso is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.